So we are smack dab around the year of 325. And last time we were introduced to a Roman emperor named Constantine. And Constantine, who considered himself to be a Christian and reigned and ruled in the name of Christ imperfectly, we talked about that. There was a persecution in the Eastern Empire. And because there was a complaint last week about not having, it was a loving suggestion of not having a map. Here is a map that you'll find in the back of uh, most, well, you'll find it in the back of an ESV study Bible or an ESV reference Bible. So it's an ESV map. And we're looking at Europe, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And this is the first 200 years, and it's showing the expansion of the, of, of the gospel. And for perspective, just, just for some perspective, here is um, America overlaid over all of Europe down into Turkey. You can see this. So it gives a sense of scale if you're traveling on foot or if you're traveling by chariot or, or horseback or something along those lines. Can you see the cursor? So we know that in Italy, that's where Rome is, and that's where the seat of the empire used to be. And when Constantine led a conquest, a war, and took the eastern part of the empire, he relocated right here to this little tiny, it's called an isthmus, it's just a, it's a piece of land connecting Greece, connecting Europe and the Middle East in, in uh, modern day Turkey. And that is where today it's Istanbul or Constantinople right there. And it's that land bridge that links. So much of what we're talking about is taking place in this region, modern day Turkey, and we've been talking about the Council of Nicaea, which, so here's Istanbul, zoom in, and about 50 miles southeast is this Lake Iznik, I'm assuming that's how you say it, and on the eastern bank of this lake, that's where all this is taking place, the, the oh, look, there's a picture. So this is where uh, the Council of Nicaea took place in, in modern, with modern-day names. So that is Turkey. Greece is across the water. And again, here's just the picture in the back of the Bibles. So we are largely focused on the right side, the Eastern Empire. When we talk about the Western Empire, it's usually kind of Italy... Go to the boot, go north, and that's the western part of the empire. So vast, so large, two different cultures, different languages, things along those lines. So as, as we've studied church history for these last 300 years, there's a growing divide in the different um, religious centers. And you had a religious center in Rome, here in Italy, and you had a religious center in uh, Constantinople, or modern-day Istanbul, Religious center in Jerusalem and Antioch. 
I just don't know if that cursor is showing up a little bit right in there. And then over here in um, Alexandria, Egypt. So Egypt, Antioch, you can see how these, this region is, you can get in a boat and take a boat and it's fairly accessible, but Rome is, is pretty removed and far away. So a lot of the conflict and theological battles are taking place between the Greek in the north and the Egyptians in the south. So that's, that's kind of a snapshot there. So when Constantine took the Eastern Empire and he led that military conquest because the Christians were being persecuted in the east, he vanquished the bad guy who was over there. I think Licinius was his name, another emperor. And then when Constantine got to the, the Eastern Empire, that's when we learned last week that he discovered the entire Eastern Empire was embroiled in a major theological controversy led by a, an elder by the name of Arius. And Arius, so his belief system is called Arianism, and his, he was the guy with the master slogans. Remember, his famous slogan was, there was when the sun was not. And so he had songs and chants and a marketing, or ch- like people chanting, hashtags, marketing scheme, full deal, he had it going on. And so that the entire, from the, the, the entire Eastern world, from the most menial position, if you could describe it that way, the guy who draws the bath, to the highest courts, everybody was talking about whether or not Jesus is a created being or the eternal son of God. So Constantine then called the Council of Nicaea, had 300 bishops arrive. They wrote the Nicene Creed. They condemned Arius as a heretic, and he was exiled, and things did not change overnight. And that's where we're picking up right here in the middle of page 42. Just because these 300 bishops agreed and wrote the Nicene Creed, that did not automatically mean that every uh, board of elders, so to speak, or presbyter in a church, large or small, whatever it was, suddenly changed their theological views. So even though this creed was written, and also they didn't have social media to publish things, it took a long time to get this word out and spread around. So what we see here, number 10, middle page 42, is at the time of the Council of Nicaea and then the next 50 years or so, there are still three main parties, three theological camps. You have the Arian party, the Nicene party, and the Originist party. This is important history that's going to help us understand when we finally get to the completion of the Nicene Creed, what's going on. So let's talk about this. So the Arian party, remember these are the bad guys, and these would be Christians, churches who agreed with Arius that the sun was a created being. And there was a, it was a small party, and it was never uh, many full-blooded Arians. So last time we were waiting into some deep theological waters about how confusing the language was and talking past each other. And so a lot of people just believed their pastors or believed what the bishop said and trusted their interpretation. So it was a, it was a small party. Then you have another group called the Nicenes. And these are the ones, these are the, the good guys we're going to continue to see. 
And they're good guys because they're simply staying faithful to what the Bible always taught. I want to I want to keep repeating that point to us where um, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they've done any reading of church history, it's usually branded that Constantine fiddled with theology or sneaky Christians changed theology. And what I want to show you is that orthodoxy has always been orthodox. They've always stayed faithful to what the Bible taught. Just the way that it was communicated was unique to the times because whatever assault somebody brought to the gospel, it required a counter offense of gospel truth to explain it. So very important to understand. So the Nicene party is the Orthodox party because they're the biblical party. And they're the ones who believed that the son was equal with the father in his divine nature. And it was also a smaller party at the time. They became known as the Nicenes because their theology was contained in the Creed of Nicaea. And then there's the Origenist party. So we're kind of being introduced to these guys for the first time. And the existence of this Origenist party is important because the Origenist party is why the Nicenes were a small party at the time. So what do I mean? The Origenist party is called that because they're named after a very prominent Eastern theologian named Origen. And so people who embraced his teaching, read his books, things along those lines, called themselves, or they were called Origenists. And he is a mixed bag, which we talked about last week, of his, of his interpretation of the Bible. He got some things really, really right and some things really, really wrong. And one of the things that he got really, really wrong is that Origen was not very clear in some areas. And one of those areas that he was not clear in, well, actually he was clear, he was wrong, is he taught that Jesus is divine, but less divine than the Father. And that's a problem. So, um, so when Constantine conquers Council of Nicaea, because Origen is about a hundred years older than this, his teaching had been around for about a century. And so it had spread. So his disciples made disciples who all taught his teachings. That's why they were the largest party, which is kind of scary because they were um, unorthodox. So during this time, 325, the great majority of Eastern bishops who accepted the traditional Eastern theology of origin, they believed that the Son was not a created being. So they're not Arians. Jesus was uncreated and divine. Yes, yes, and yes. He is the eternally begotten from the Father's essence. Yes. But here's the thing. But they held that the Son was inferior to the Father in his divine nature, a degree less divine than the absolute divinity possessed by the Father. This is what was taught in pulpits. It was what was read in books and things along those lines. Now, what kind of environment does that create? The Originists and the Nicenes both thought the Arians were heretics. Okay, so those groups could unite against the bad guy Arians. However, they also thought the same of each other. So, and, and largely, we're going to see, because we have to get into some words, 
largely due to semantic issues, meaning the definitions of words. They were using the same words with different meanings and confusing each other. And it's already confusing to begin with. So sometimes the originists and the Nicenes would team together against the Arians. Sometimes the Arians and the originists would team together against the Nicenes. We've already seen that there was actually riots with clubs and swords and spears where they would actually fight and even kill each other at times. So it's not a minor, minor deal. So what was the confusion? Well, the originists were confused and thought the Nicenes were actually Sabellian modalists. I know that you guys missed that phrase. And I know we've already covered it. I know, remember, so there was Sibelius, and Sibelius got excommunicated from the church in Rome, and he was a modalist, and we looked at that heresy where God changes his mode, he changes his mask to suit the times, so the modalists thought that God's mode was angry Old Testament God in the OT, gentle Jesus in the New Testament, or the Gospels, and then the Spirit in the epistles. So the originists hear the Nicenes and they say, you guys are just closet modalists. You guys are heretics. And it has to come down with a word, usia. And we'll come back to this. We're going to be talking about, you, you guys are getting your money's worth tonight. You're welcome. Lots of Greek. Well, actually not lots of Greek. We're going to, we're going to look at Three Greek words and maybe some fun Latin. So both groups use this word usia, which, which we'll come back to. Right now you just need to see that it's there. Um, and the reason the originists didn't like the Nicenes is because the Nicenes and the bad guys, the Sibelian modalists, both used the word usia. So the originist said, hey, you guys claim to be different. You're using the same word to describe something, but differently. So they just lumped them together. And that's why there was conflict. At the same time, the Nicenes suspiciously viewed the originists as some type of semi-Aryans. Because if, if origin is teaching, yes, Jesus is eternal, but Jesus is less divine than the Father... Sure sounds like Jesus is different from the Father. Is he created being? So it sounds like you're a semi-Aryan. You're not dark chocolate. You're semi-sweet chocolate. You're the bad guys. So everybody was confused about what everybody, what everyone taught. But the Nicene Creed was growing in terms of its um, expanse of, of, of orthodoxy. So before we move forward... Any questions on that? The three camps for the next 50 years are fighting over each other theologically. Yes. Thanks, Isaac. Originists. It seems like a lot of times when there's something false that's promoted, they they kind of have a different interpretation of something that's actually in the Bible. Do you know if that was the case with the originists, where they said that Jesus is less divine than the Father, did they have any, like, uh, biblical backing for that as they understood the Bible, or did they just kind of whip it up? 
Yeah, that's, that's a good question, brother. I, I didn't do deep enough research. I'm going to presume the answer is yes. I mean, Origen was reading his Bible. And one thing that we'll, we'll come across is for these guys, if you think about our day and age, now there's the rise of spirituality. There's always been spirituality. But the, for the last few hundred years since the Enlightenment in the West, the belief in God is nonsense to most people. God, you need a crutch to live or something along those lines. And so the, the difficulty for the modern mind is to think that there's a God. But in the ancient world, God was, of course there's a God. There's, a, there's many gods. Why would you even say there's no God? There's no such thing. Remember, they called the Christians atheists because we didn't have enough gods at the time. So for them, and this is answering your question, Scott, in a long way, is for them the idea that God would become flesh was absurd. So rather, the idea of God today is absurd. The idea of God becoming flesh is absurd. So Origen is trying to think about if, if God the Son becomes incarnate, truly man, he's assuming something had to change within the Trinity, and God can't change, so he's trying to work through... Um, what he sees in the Bible wrongly? Yeah, it's a good question. Yes. Well, I need a, or, yes. Go for it. Okay. Um, so when you say that the idea of, like, a God becoming, like, physical was, was like, ludicrous, was that only for Christians or is that for everybody? Because, like, there's stories of, like, Greek gods coming here, having children, like, that kind of stuff. So is that a general mindset that everybody had at that point? It, you, you have stories along those lines where the gods were able to assume a physical form, but but remained only divine and not human. That would be the difference. This would be, wait a second, God is condescending and humbling himself. That's what was foreign to all other religions. Very good question. Anita? I was wondering if there were so Nicene, the Nicene Creed came about because of a council. Were there creeds or councils that went with the other, like origin? Origin? Did they have like a council and say, "Hey, this is what we think"? And I was just curious. That's a good question. I don't think so. They would have little localized. Um, so, so last week we learned that Alexander was the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. And he was the Nicene guy before Nicene was written. And when Arius began to do his false teaching, Bishop Alexander was preaching, teaching, and writing against Arius's teachings in Egypt. And he ended up calling a council together of just in that town of area bishops, and they excommunicated Arius. So that was a small one, but this... The Nicene Creed, this is the first formal creed of the church where bishops gather together and saying, we are going to clarify the gospel and, and do it for the global church. So there's been little things, but nothing like this. This is the first. And we looked a, weeks ago at the Apostles' Creed, and, and no one knows where that came from. It's most likely related to some baptism formula that was said in the early years of the church. Okay, good question. Yes, Porter. 
this may be diving too deep into uh, deep theological matters, so let me know. Um, just as heresies are not new, um, I have a question about the originist, or I believe that's how you say it. Would you say it's fair to say that this idea carries on today? I know there's a lot of debate in certain theological circles about the concept of the the eternal subordination of the sun. Do you think that is carrying on the tradition of origin? They look really related. I, I think they do because... Um, that modern theological dispute is, is trying to discern the internal relationship of the Trinity, ad intra, to give you some, some uh, Latin, the ad intra relationship of the Trinity within himself, their self, eternity past and eternity future. And so Origen, as he's thinking about the relationship between the Father and the Son, is doing something similar but he's, he seems to be, Origen seems to be doing it in relation to the incarnation, not so much with the um, ESS. Yeah, ESS is doing, but we can talk more about that. Don't worry about it. Okay, so let's, let's move forward. Um, Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria, had a disciple, a sub-bishop, I'm not entirely sure what the title was, and his name was Athanasius. And Athanasius was, uh, did a lot of writing and arguing at the Council of Nicaea. And Athanasius ended up proving to be a very sharp mind and influential uh, Christian. Well, Alexander ends up passing away and when he passes away, he names his successor to be Athanasius. And Athanasius, this name becomes the dominant name for the next 50 years until we get to Nicaea 2.0, when they um, add to the creed. So let's, let's meet Athanasius. There's a, if you read any um, ancient biographies, you'll often hear this phrase, Athanasius Contra mundum, and that is Athanasius against the world. And because many viewed him, given the context of Arians and Origenists and the smaller group of the Nicenes, he was oftentimes the lone voice defending clearly what the Bible taught against all the other false teaching. And in many ways, he was grossly outnumbered in terms of just people who would say, I'm an Arian, I'm an originist. So um, here's some descriptions of this guy, Athanasius. Gregory of Nazianzus described Athanasius as a small, thin man with a beautiful face, piercing eyes, and a mysterious aura of power which affected even his enemies. Athanasius was the senior deacon and secretary of Bishop Alexander. He took part in the Council of Nicaea where he distinguished himself with his eloquent arguments for Christ's deity. And it was on the recommendation of the dying Alexander that the Alexandrian church elected Athanasius as his successor. And so Athanasius became bishop in 328 of Alexandria, Egypt. 
three years or so after Nicaea. Throughout his 45 years as, ba- as bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius proved an unswerving, uncompromising enemy of Arianism in all its forms. The immortal name of Athanasius will never be separated from the Catholic, universal, doctrine of the Trinity, to whose defense he consecrated every moment and every faculty of his being. Together with this unfaltering devotion to the deity of Christ, Athanasius combined high moral courage, a quick-thinking mind, a sparkling sense of humor, and a broad-minded tolerance of many theological differences among all who were united with him in the struggle against the Arians. Now listen to this. Across his ministry in Alexandria, Egypt, plus his numerous books, Athanasius was exiled five times, totaling 17 years, ordered by four different Roman emperors, not counting about six more episodes in which he had to escape Alexandria, Egypt from people seeking to take his life. These exiles and flights were all centered around his defense of biblical orthodoxy against the Arians. Often either an emperor or some magistrate sympathetic to Arianism or in league with an Arian bishop would rise to power, leading to Athanasius's ouster from his church in Alexandria, Egypt. So 17 years, almost, you're getting closer to half of his ministry. His life dedicated, as these quotes show, to a fierce focus on the deity of Christ, huge writing ministry, wrote lots of stuff. But what happened is you'd have a different emperor would rise to power, and there would be Christians in the court. Even the emperor himself might claim to be a Christian, but there was, as this says, four emperors who considered themselves Arians. There was even a season when Constantine, when he was still alive, slipped into Arianism and then came out of it. And during all that time, Athanasius is exiled. He's, he's run out of Flagstaff, has to go into hiding and live somewhere, continues to write his books. And then when the emperor died or changed or whatever the political climate, because the politics and the theology were pretty closely aligned, when the theological climate changed, political climate changed, he was welcomed back. So five exiles, 17 years, people sneaking into the city, mobs, assassins trying to kill him. It's an interesting life. Athanasius returned from his final exile in 366 to Alexandria. He spent his last six years there carrying on his Episcopal bishop duties. Unbothered, he died in 373. It was Athanasius' courage and indomitable opposition to Arianism, in spite of persecution and exile, which did more than anything else to bring about the defeat of the Arians in the church. They'd never produced anyone of the same heroic moral stature as the Bishop of Alexandria. On the bottom of page 43, I have a link here for you. It's a John Piper. He, he, for I think about two decades, every year would take a life, a biography, and take the year to read the theology and the writings and biographies of a old dead saint, old dead Christian, and then he would uh, preach a sermon on the life of that person. And that's a link to, the, his, um, uh, to a message on Athanasius. It's really worth your time. 
It's really, really encouraging. You can listen to it or I think you can watch it. Here is a sample. So let's, let's listen to the man himself. This is Athanasius' letter to the Egyptian bishops. Just to give you a sample of the thinking and the writing. Unbelief is coming in through these men, the Arians, or rather a non-scriptural Judaism allied with Gentile superstition. Anyone who holds these opinions can no longer be called a Christian, for they're completely contrary to the scriptures. John, for example, says the word existed in the beginning, John 1.1. 1, 1. But these men say he did not exist before he was begotten. And again, John writes, we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, 1 John 5.20. But these men, as if to contradict this, claim that Christ is not the true God. But the scripture only calls him God, as it also gives this title to other um, creaturely beings on account of Jesus' participation as a created being in the divine nature. Just pause there for a second. Do you, do you see what the Arians were doing well, yes, the Bible calls Jesus God, but it's just doing it symbolically or metaphorically. It's kind of how we would say it today. So they're acknowledging, they're reading the same text, but then they're changing the meaning. And that's why it's important to be clear on, on terms. That's what he's, he's doing here. The Apostle Paul condemns the Gentiles for worshiping created beings, saying... They worship the creature more than God the creator. Romans one twenty five. But if these men say that the Lord Jesus is a created being and worship him as a created being, how then do they differ from the Gentiles? Piercing biblical logic. If Jesus is created, then you're worshiping creation and you are in sin. So he's showing them their own contradiction. If they hold his opinion... In this passage, that's Paul's opinion in Romans 1. If they hold his, position, his opinion in this passage not against them, and does not the blessed Paul not write in condemnation of them, the Lord also says, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. And, quote, he that has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. And the Apostle Paul, whom Christ sent forth to preach, says of him, quote, he is the brightness of God's glory and the exact image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. But these men, the Arians, dare to separate the Son from the Father, claiming that the Son is alien to the Father's essence and eternity. In an ungodly way, if, a, uh, if, a represent him, if they represent him as changeable, not seeing that by seeking thus, they make the Son to be not one with the Father, but one with created things. Who, but who does not see that you cannot separate the brightness from the light. Brightness belongs by nature to the light and exists along with it and does not come into existence after it. There's a sample of Athanasius' writing in the mid-300s. Intelligent guy. Using scripture, he knows his opponent's arguments, and then he uses the Bible that they're twisting to untwist or to expose 
their mistakes. Athanasius' defense and promotion of orthodoxy contained in the Nicene Creed of 325 was picked up by a new generation. So he dies in 373 as he's aging. A new generation of men arise who are often called the Cappadocian Fathers. Two brothers and a buddy. The two brothers are Basil and Gregory. They're, they're biological brothers. And they become bishops, Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nyssa. And then there's another Greg, their other buddy Greg of Nazianzus. He was their good friend. And these three guys become the focal point that are going to get us to the year 381 and the expansion of the Nicene Creed, and then we'll finally have a chance to look at the Creed. But this is where it's going to get complicated. But the way that these guys pastor and handle the Word of God is really remarkable. So let's, let's get into this. Here's a, here's a summary. Here's a summary of the Cappadocian fathers carrying Athanasius' torch to Nicaea 2.0. The Cappadocian fathers rank alongside Athanasius as the outstanding Eastern theologians of the 4th century. Their writings and personal influence brought about a final union between the Nicene and Originist parties. So remember, Athanasius basically defeats the Arians. Now these Cappadocian fathers are going to unite the final two parties, the Nicenes and the Originists. Here's what happens. The Cappadocians achieved this by persuading both sides to use a new theological language. They, they rewrote their dictionaries, so to speak. And the problem was centered on two Greek words. Now it's going to get exciting. And if you think your friend has a question, feel free to ask it on their behalf. Hypostasis and usia. Hypostasis in Usia. So if you go to the page, top of page 45, this is where language matters. And it's important for us to go to the original language that they wrote in and spoke in and more to, to get a sense on the one hand of, of how close some of these words sound. Because we have the same issues today. So if you're talking to a Latter-day Saint, if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, you have the same... Um, dictionary, but with different definitions. And so you can talk past each other. And this is what's happening here on a kind of different flavored scale. So let's talk about these words. The first one is hypostasis. Hypostasis is pronounced hypostasis. And the plural is hypostases. Usia and the plural is usii. See, look at that phonetics. Did it all by myself. Usii. <laughs> so here's what's going on. Up until then, these two groups, these two words meant much the same thing in the Greek language. Hypostasis and usia were kind of synonyms, meaning the same thing. This caused 
great theological confusion because when the Nicenes said the Father and Son had one divine nature or essence, they expressed it by saying the Father and Son have one hypostasis and one usia. So we don't know what the words mean yet, but just what we do know is that when the Nicenes spoke about the relationship of the Father and Son, one hypostasis and one usia. Simple, right? When the originists said the Father and Son were two distinct persons, they used the exact same words to say something different. They said the Father and Son were two hypostases and two usia. Aside from the complex language, can you see a problem? Both groups are using the same words meaning one or meaning two. And that's where it gets even more confusing. What's also interesting is each group had a different emphasis. And within Orthodox Christianity, especially today, this is still a major dividing line. That sometimes a matter of emphasis can make it sound like to another group, you're a heretic or that they're a heretic. They don't have the same emphasis as you. So, for example, notice how the Nicenes... They were really focused on the oneness, the the, the unity of God. Remember, they're fighting against Arian, who is saying, there was when the Son was not. Jesus is a created being, not the eternal Son of God, they wrongly said. So the Nicenes were obsessed with, their writing was dedicated to defending the oneness of the Godhead, the Trinity. But the originists were thinking more about the difference between the persons of the Trinity. So it was a different emphasis. Oneness and the, the persons of the Trinity. And so they use the same language and that causes fights. So here's what the brilliant Cappadocian fathers did led by Basil. To get rid of this confusion... The Cappadocians, led by Basil, made two proposals. Okay, guys, please, let's make a proposal. Let's see if we can come to agreement. Here's what they said. Number one, from now on, the word usia should refer specifically to the one divine nature or essence, as the Nicene said. But two... The word hypostasis should refer specifically to the two distinct persons of the Trinity, Father and Son, as the originists said. So they, take, they took one word from each group. You get to keep your oneness. You get to keep your two-ness. And we're going to bring those together. So we're going to speak of one God in three persons. That's where this language is coming from. So we can sum up the definitions like this. The word usia is the one nature, the one being of God, the one essence of God, which the Father and Son and Spirit share fully and equally, making them the one God. No more God, no less God. They are the one being, our one triune God, usia. O for one. 
Whereas hypostasis is the particular and distinct form in which the divine nature exists. Father, Son, and Spirit, making them two, three distinct persons. The reason I'm saying, I'm putting Spirit in parentheses yet, because once they write Nicene Creed 2.0, then a new group's going to rise and say, yes, Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is not God. And that's going to cause another problem. So they're going to, they make, they make a clarifying statement. So right now their focus is on Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit is kind of getting forgotten a little bit right now in, in their, in their arguments. So here's, here you have this, uh, dark square rectangle on the bottom, page 45. And if you look at the bottom, this is, I'm just repeating here what we just read. So to put this in English, God is kind of English. God is three hypostases in one usia. God is three persons in one single eternal being. Now, there's a reason why there is smoke coming out of your ears. It's complex because God is not a created being. He is unlike anything that exists. There is nothing like him. And so what what we and what our forefathers have done is they're going back to the word and they're reading and they're looking at and they're comparing scripture with scripture and they're and they're seeing these things that okay well we we baptize in the one name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. What do we do with that? And so they're trying to use this language but these Cappadocian fathers are also using the words that they're using and they're they're mediating they're being peacemakers and clarifiers to make sure that everybody understands and is saying the same thing and so yes you hear it often said you might if you you might take it for granted yeah god is one god in three persons and you can say that we can say the formula but just take five minutes to actually think about that and it's wild to consider who god is in his in his being And they're threading a really tight needle here. It's not three gods. It's not a modalist God who changes his form. It's one God in three persons. I'm going to pause there. Any questions? I wasn't part of the controversy, uh, may have been with origin, of homoousius versus homoousius, which is of similar substance. Yes. So we'll see that again. Uh, but if you remember this section, just what Randy's referring to, if you, if you have your notes, go back to page 30. Page 40, middle of the page, number two, and we'll see this a little more when we get into the actual creed itself, but there's another Greek issue, and this is where I said the difference between eternal life and eternal death is the letter I, and that's what Randy's referring to. Another word, is Jesus a similar substance with the Father, or this, 
Is Jesus a similar usia or a same usia? And they're saying he's the same usia, same being. And so we'll, good, yeah, we'll go back to that a little more. What else? Any other questions? This might be a silly question. No silly questions. <laughs> um, no, this meaning, no, please ask a okay, question. So, it's not a silly question. So I'm just wondering, um, as we're talking about this, what form of the word did they have? Did they have like what we have in our Bibles or are they like, when was the Bible, the year the Bible was put together? And that, that's my question. Like, yeah, and yeah. were they just like copies of letters? They were, you know, that were being, you know, available to read or, you know, I don't know. My, that's my question. Like, what were they actually, what was available for them to study to figure this out? They had what we have. Okay. Yeah. And they, so they were, they were, they had their Bibles as well as reading the previous generations of Christian writers like Origen, Tertullian, Irenaeus, some of these other guys that we've heard already who are more focused on defending the faith than necessarily explaining the faith. So what year was the the actual Bible compiled? I guess that's my question. Like what year was that? Yeah, the... Um, that is a great question. So on page 15 and following, so you can grab the notes if you don't have them, we talk about something called the Muratorian Canon, which is one of the earliest fragments that we have. That is a, the list of the New Testament books, acknowledging what was already received by the church. It also includes um, heretical books not to read, and then it includes books that are helpful to read but shouldn't be read in church. So the, the canon... Um, uh, the, the books of the Bible, that's what I mean by canon, was Old Testament, that was set and done. Jesus affirmed it. Jesus affirmed it. But they, um, they had the same books as we did, and there was a few others that, depending upon where you lived, maybe you were missing Jude, or you added the shepherd of Hermas, is what it was called. But yeah, so they, they had the same Bible as us. Very, very good question. Do we have the writings of these guys? Yes, but we have copies of their writings. We don't have the original. Similar to our New Testament, we just have copies of the copies. And that's that's how like we have this Athanasius quote here and whatnot. Onward, Christian soldiers. Top of page 46. So the Cappadocians also settled another dispute about whether the Holy Spirit was God. It was not surprising, after decades of controversy over whether Christ was God, that some Christians should now start arguing about the status of the Holy Spirit. Well, is the Holy Spirit God or not? Some who opposed the Arians and accepted the deity of Christ nevertheless denied the deity of the Spirit. These guys were called Macedonians, not because they were from Macedonia, but because their leader, one of their leaders was named Macedonus, Macedonius, who was for a time a bishop of Constantinople, who this guy, the Arians, actually deposed him in 360 for his belief in Christ's deity. 
so he got excommunicated. The Macedonians were also known as Numatamakoi. Uh, I can't. Numa, spirit. And then um, Makoi is a, a form of the word fight. And so they were called fighters against the spirit. Now, Athanasius had already argued in, back in 358 the Holy Spirit must be recognized as God alongside the Father and Son. So the Cappadocians carried on Athanasius' argument, strengthened it, and laid the basis for extending the term homoousios to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was the same essence, same usia as the Father. It bears repeating that the church has always believed the Holy Spirit is God. The deity of the Spirit, just as the deity of Christ, was an issue because heretics made it an issue. So the church taught it and believed it, but heretics made it an issue, therefore apologists had to defend the faith and protect against the ch- protect the church. For example, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and on the text goes. Here in the first verses of the Hebrew, there appears, when you first read it, and we know it's the Trinity, the text appears even in the beginning to differentiate God and the Spirit of God as one, but distinct. Or in Acts 5, maybe you remember this episode, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back uh, for yourself of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter, in the same breath, as he's rebuking Ananias, is acknowledging you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. So again, this is just an example of saying, well, if someone says, well, the, the Bible never says the Holy Spirit is God himself. Well, here, here's, here's, a, here's a passage you could go to and say, yes, it does. Yes, it does. So what had started as a dispute across 50 years against these different groups, heretical and perhaps misunderstood, This turned into a full search for a doctrine of the Trinity. And the Cappadocians created the following formula for expressing this doctrine. So here it is again. God is three hypostases in one usia. That is, in English, God is three persons existing eternally in one single being or nature or essence. Sometimes our theology is built around negation. What does that mean? You could say, I'm not entirely sure how to explain the Trinity, but I can tell you what the Trinity is not. He is not three gods, and he does not change his modes. He's not a modalist. So in between these two guardrails, he's one God. We've already made that clear. But he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, not changing modes, one God, three persons. 
And this one, the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are the same essence, same being. Um, Diane or Randy. Do you remember uh, there's a, because we talked about this, there's a theological term, it's Latin, I can't remember what it is, and it's and it describes, you know, the picture of the Trinity uh, of um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit circulating within himself as one being. Do you remember what that's called? By, by chance? <laughs> Randy's going to figure it out. An illustration of what the Cappadocians meant by this would be a mountain with three sides or faces. Whichever face of the mountain we look at presents the reality of the self-same mountain to us. So we would say, I have seen the mountain. Yet each face of the mountain is distinct from the other two. In other words, God is not three separate beings or realities. God is not three separate beings or realities. What they're communicating is that God the Father possesses one divine nature, one single reality of Godness, which he shares completely with the Son, whom he begets from all eternity, and with his Holy Spirit, whom he eternally breathes forth. This is the language to describe the relationship of the Trinity within himself, one God and three persons. So we're going to hear the word begotten a whole lot. And the reason is, that's the language the Bible uses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, does that mean that Jesus is a created being? Because fathers beget sons. Is that what that's teaching? So that's what Arius taught, but we know that's not the case. So, we, we, so this Bible language gets pretty complex here. Father, Son, and Spirit are each fully and equally God because they each fully and equally possess the one divine essence or nature, usia. Yet, they are distinct persons, hypostases, because they each possess, okay, they each possess it, that is the one divine usia, The Father possesses the divine nature in and from himself alone. The Son possesses the divine nature from the Father as a child from a parent by way of begetting, Bible word, or eternal generation, or filiation. And the Holy Spirit possesses the divine nature from the Father by proceeding from the Father, John fourteen twenty six, and has the everlasting breath of his mouth, spiration. They're trying to use words that create these boundaries to guard from these heresies and those heresies to communicate that God is one being, but the Father's the Father and the Son's the Son and the Spirit's the Spirit.
remember our awesome chart, our chart of awesomeness. This is what all their words are doing right here. You have one God, one God right there in the middle, the Father, oh, 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 don't do that. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. That's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also teaches the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But the Bible teaches that the Father is in the Spirit and in the Son, and the Son is in the Father and in the Spirit. And the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son, and so the way it goes is there is only one God. Yet the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father of the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father of the Son. And yet each member is in the other. Yet there's only one God. There you go. There is the Trinity simply explained. You're welcome. <laughs> Randy. Yeah, positive and negative, yes. This is page 32, by the way, if you don't have it. And then above it is just a series of charts taken simply from, only from the Gospel of John, where it shows just in John, we could do pages and pages of this if we included the whole Bible, where different actions or attributes are assigned to the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you read your Bible... And if the Bible's saying the same thing, if Jesus receives worship, and that's a good thing, and only God can receive worship, then Jesus must be God, for example. Any questions? Clarifications? Restatements? Uh, by the way, I think that this is confusing too. <laughs> So let's keep going. Nicenes and... Where am I? Page 47. Nicenes and Origenists rallied together around the Cappadocian formula of the three persons in one essence, three hypostases and one usia. The Origenists gave up saying that the Son was inferior to the Father in his divine nature. And the Nicenes distanced themselves conclusively from the Sabellian modalist heresy to which some of them had been inclined. At least they could present a unified front against the Arians. Okay. The Arian Emperor Valens died fighting the Goths in 378. The West had had a Nicene Emperor ever since 375. So remember, this, this whole, all this dispute is largely in the East, and the West is just doing their own thing. And they had had a, a Nicene emperor, Gratian. Gratian now appointed a new Nicene emperor for the East, a Spanish soldier called Theodosius. Theodosius gave Arianism its death blow by issuing an edict end in 380, which recognized Nicene believers as the only ones legally entitled to use the name Catholic, meaning true Orthodox Universal Church. 
And that also gave the Nicenes legal possession of church buildings. So they could, uh, I, I didn't research this, but that meant that if you were an Aryan church, you were ousted from your building legally as edict of the emperor. In 381, Theodosius summoned an ecumenical council at Constantinople. So he just got a bunch of bishops together. The Council of Constantinople produced a new revised form of the Creed of Nicaea known as the Nicene Creed. That's what we referred to. We meaning just modern Christians. And the new Nicene Creed reaffirmed and extended the teaching of the Council of 325. The Nicene Creed, so sometimes you'll hear this uh, called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Try saying that. Just call it the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed became so highly prized over the next hundred years that by the end of the 400s, Eastern churches had started reciting the Nicene Creed in their worship services as a public declaration of their faith. Western churches began using the creed in worship towards the end of the 500s. And while Arianism and other heresies were never fully stamped out by God's grace, biblical orthodoxy won the day. The Nicene Creed uh, was used in communion services. It was used oftentimes at baptism services where it would be, uh, do you believe, then quote the Nicene Creed, and the person getting baptized would say, yes, I do. Or the, it'd be a statement of the gospel before the church took the Lord's Supper. So it was a rich and diverse history. And it's important to note, with this class that we're in, we have two more creeds to get to. We have the Athanasian Creed, and you might recognize that name. We just talked about him, Athanasius. And we have the Chalcedonian Definition. And these two that we're going to get to eventually are footnotes to this Nicene Creed. Because when we get into the Nicene Creed, we're going to see that it answers some questions, but then creates new questions and new controversies and new heretics rise up. And so it required those additional statements that we'll, that we'll get to. So finally, here we are. If you look on page 48... Side by side, the left column is the Nicene, the original Nicene Creed of 325. And on the right side is the final Nicene Creed of 381. And what I did there on the left is I broke it up into doctrinal categories. So that you can kind of see what subject is being spoken of and then how the, what changes took place. So let's look at this. With this line by line. We finally get to hear it. So the Nicene Creed of 325 begins with, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things visible and invisible. And remember that phrase, we believe... Is, the, is a form of that word credo. That's the name of our class. This is the Latin. Credo is I believe. So we believe. Now look at how it changed in 381. It changed to I believe in one God, 
the Father Almighty, it's all the same, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. So they inserted uh, maker of heaven and earth. Now here's where we start getting into God the Son. And you'll see that the move from 325 to 381, they smoothed out some of the language. But this is where you get some very beautiful language to describe the Son. And remember, their concern is the relationship of the Son to the Father. So in 325, they said, and in one, Lord Jesus Christ. So, they be- so we believe in one God the Father. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, from the usia, the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same usia, essence, as the Father, through whom all things were created, both in heaven and on earth. And here's how they reworded it in 381. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, essence, same word, usia, with the Father, by whom all things were made. We're going to go into this into detail, so I don't want to unpack it too much. I do want to highlight how beautiful and ancient those words are. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And it's interesting to think about how Athanasius, when we wrote that quote from him, how he talked about how the light is inseparable from the source. Sometimes they talk about the, the sun sends forth rays of light, but the rays of light from the sun are part of the sun. And so in this case, the father is like the sun in the sky and the light rays is Jesus, the inseparability of God. So light of light. So is Athanasius, was it his thinking that helped get that into here? Or was it because it was in there from the first one? Like, is that his language? Maybe. It's just it's really neat. So then they go into more detail on Jesus. In 325, who for us men and and for our salvation came down, was incarnate, was made man. And if you notice here in 381, very similar, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, so added heaven, and was incarnate, and then they added, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. And was made man. 381 adds, and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. Add burial. He was suffered and buried, which was not in the previous one. Neither creed mentions his descent into the grave. Jesus' resurrection on the third day. His ascent into heaven. 
in his session, meaning that he's right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. His return, he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So if you just, if we back up for a second, God the Father gets just a few, two sentences or so. You see that? But then you scroll down, and when we talk about Jesus, we have his personhood, God the Son, incarnation, virgin birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and session, and return. So they, they are laying out the understanding, a, a, a biblical understanding of the gospel. And it's including this pre-existence of Christ, birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session. All right there. Then they turn to the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, in 325, <laughs> this is all they said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Those kind of thin, right? And then you have those, you know, those bad guys, the Numatomakoi people, who come up and say the Holy Spirit isn't God. And so now in 381, they clarify by giving, by saying, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So a lot more detail regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We'll unpack that together next time. And then the church is mentioned. Church wasn't even mentioned in the first one. Now they have, I believe in one holy Catholic, meaning universal, apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and I look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the age to come. I want to pause there and just any questions uh, regarding the change or the, the expansion of the creed and clarification of the creed or any of the hypostases, usia, Isaac, got Diane. I was wondering um, why they put in one baptism for the remission of sins. Do you know if there's history behind that phrase? Yeah, we're going to get into that because as a soundbite out of context and not familiar with the Bible, you might think, well, I need to be baptized in order to be saved. And that's not what they're teaching. So just to, one, one thing that is implied is this is a creed, I believe. And you have the word I believe mentioned three times with the Father and the Spirit and then the church here. And then it's implied with Jesus and in one Lord Jesus Christ. So, so you have four references to I believe. That's I faith. So the structure of this, similar to the Apostles' Creed we saw, was that it, it, it doesn't say justification by faith. But the entire framing of it is that it's salvation by grace through faith, not works. So if you take that context of the creed, then it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb to see baptism for the remission of sins. Because that sounds like, get baptized, then you're saved. And so... Um, what they're doing here is they're drawing a lot from Scripture, obviously. 1 Corinthians 15 is a major text behind this, explaining the gospel. 
and the baptism for the remission of sins, that language comes from Peter. And being good Baptists, we think that language can be a little bit confusing. So we'll, we'll look at that, what, what, um, what that language means. The, the way I'm going to describe it is that baptism has always been, but especially in the early church, a shorthand summary statement for all that goes on with the gospel. You hear someone preach the gospel, you believe it, you repent of your sins, and usually your first act of obedience is going public with your faith by being baptized. Usually the, the priest, the bishop, the elder heard your testimony, knows you're a believer, and then you get baptized. But that language comes from Peter when he says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of your sins in Acts chapter 2. Yeah. Is there a reason they switch from saying we believe to I believe? I don't know. But there's got to be a reason. So if you go to page 49, a little bit out of order, but here, what I do on 49 is here is the Apostles' Creed, which we looked at a number of, well, a few weeks ago, compared to the Nicene Creed. And you'll notice that the skeletal structure is largely identical. And what I think is beautiful about that is that means that this Apostles' Creed, which is maybe from the mid 150s. And the Nicene Creed, over 150 years later, if you think about what these men did at this council, is they didn't go and try to invent some statement that was entirely new, but they appeared to be using the skeletal structure of the already received and believed and loved Apostles' Creed and just expanded it. And so really the Apostles' Creed is embedded inside the Nicene Creed. And that just shows that one of the, a mark of good, careful pastoral theology is making statements that are, are, are more aligned with our past than trying to be novel and say new things. Sometimes you have to say new things. The word Trinity was a new thing. So I'm not discounting that, but, but in terms of shepherding the church, Here's people who've loved and recited the Apostles' Creed for generations, and they're just taking that, and now they're writing the Nicene Creed to be the new formal statement of the church. And you can look in there and see, for example, you know, the Apostles' Creed simply said regarding Jesus, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And that was self-evident. They believed in the Trinity. The word Trinity did not exist yet. Tertullian, or some guy hadn't invented it yet. But you look at, because of the Arianism and the other heresies that arose, you can see how it's expanded again to the beautiful statement, the Nicene Creed, where there's, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten but not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That knotted, thick language 
we now have this historical understanding of the theological battles they were fighting to just simply preserve that Jesus really is who he said he was, the son of God in the flesh. And he really was the person, the baby, that Gabriel told Mary she was going to give birth to, Emmanuel, God with us, and more. And so we're just seeing this beautiful language. And a lot of very, very similar language down through the rest of this. Well, I want to go ahead and just take any other questions, open season on anything, and then go ahead and and close us. Yes, Randy. Does that mean he rose for the first time and then rose again, again? Again, again. (laughs) In other words, on the third day he rose again. Why not just say he rose from the dead? Or was there a first rising I missed? (laughs) Were you there? (laughs) Sorry. That's a good one. I don't know why they said that. It's, it, 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 I don't know. Maybe it's a translation thing coming from the Greek or Latin. But as far as I know, no one thought that there was multiple resurrections of Jesus. Could that could that possibly mean that that um, his ro- he rose again, meaning like came back again to life? And in other words, like he was before, he was walking on the earth. Yeah, it very well could be. Thank you, Carrie. That's a good thought. What else? Questions, comments? Yes, come over there. Uh, following up my question earlier, do you think it, the, the language change could potentially be to more closely match the Apostles' Creed since that was in terms of I? It could be. Yeah, it, could, it, very, it very well could be. I, I prefer <laughs> We Believe. Just, I think it's real important. Um, our faith is personal but not private. And especially in our day and age, because we're such a privatized me and Jesus uh, and kind of church is an optional add-on, I think the corporateness of, even you'll notice like a lot of our singing at churches, we try to sing a lot of we songs because we're singing it together. Um, but I like we. This is going to drive me crazy trying to think of this crazy word. Perichoresis. Yes, perichoresis. Who said that? Anita? Perichoresis. Yes. That's all I wanted. I'll show you a picture of it. There, that's a, that's perichoresis. <laughs> Uh, yes, it is. Um, I can can I? Oh, well, it's peri And so let me just read this to you. The Greek term used to describe the eternal, mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity is perichoresis. Or in Latin, circumcision session. Haley, did I say that right? Do you know Latin? Yeah. 
Do you know Latin? Okay. I thought you did. Okay, so there's this term, perichoresis. There's the Latin. Circulation. It's also sometimes used as a way of metaphorically describing the unceasing circulation of the divine essence, such that each person is in the other two, while the others are each in one. Make sense? Let's keep going. At the risk of putting things in physical terms, perichoresis means that all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, occupy the same divine space. In other words, we cannot see God without seeing all three persons at the same time. So what did Jesus say to to Thomas? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The mutual indwelling of perichoresis means two things. First, the three persons of the Trinity are fully in one another. And second, each person of the Trinity is in full possession of the divine usia, the divine essence. To be sure, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Perichoresis does not deny any of this. What perichoresis maintains is that you cannot have one person of the Trinity without having the other two. And you cannot have any person of the Trinity without having the fullness of God. The intercommunion of the persons is reciprocal and their operations are inseparable. As Augustine put it, each are in each, all in each, each in all, and all are one. That's a smart guy too. Each are in each, all in each, and each in all, and all are one. Make a good tattoo. <laughs> so, so this language is later development of what we're getting here as they're working through this Greek language of hypostasis and homoousia and all of those crazy words, this is further development of the thinking to explain, well, what are we saying when there's one God and three persons? It's not Gollum. He doesn't change from Smeagol to Gollum and back and forth or any of those things. So perichoresis, that's extra, that's like a, that's a freebie tonight. Thank you, Anita. Anita, do you remember that? You looked it up? Thank you. <laughs> That's right. So this, this shows how it safeguards Trinity. Michaela, did you have one? I did. Okay. Um, so a few weeks ago when we were going through the Apostles' Creed, you said every Christian believes more than the Apostles' Creed, but no Christian can believe less. Would you say the same of the Nicene Creed and all the statements in there? I think so. And actually, when I was working on the notes, I was going to take that Albert Muller quote and put it here also. Uh, I, I think that's the case. And, and honestly, the Nicene Creed is received by Eastern Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholic Christians, and Protestant Christians. Albeit with a little bit different understanding of things. And then we're going to get into a major, major controversy next time um, regarding the Holy Spirit and whether the Holy Spirit also proceeds from the Son or not, which the Eastern Orthodox do not accept. 
but we'll, we'll get to that. Randy. The one, uh, the one uh, word that kind of gets by uh, past me or it's hard to comprehend is the word begotten because that always kind of indicates there's a beginning of something, but I guess we have to think of that as being an eternal begotten within the perichoresis of the Father. <laughs> yes. But as begotten, I always think of I always think of it as when Christ came to this earth and put on flesh, he was begotten there, but there's an eternal begottenness that is beyond our, our comprehension, I guess. That's right. So one, I challenge of all of you to use the word perichoresis as many times tonight as you can before you go to bed. Two, th- that's where this language comes in. So, so, so think about what they're saying here in the Creed of 381. They're acknowledging the only begotten Son of God. Now, if you just had that, Arian would say, yes, that is absolutely true. Jesus was begotten. He's a created being. There was when the Son was not. So look what they've added. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Okay, that's still potentially Arian. Just Jesus was the first of creation. Then Jesus created all things. Jehovah's Witness teach that. But that's where this comes in. No, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. So they're trying to show that he's not created because the Father's not created. Therefore, Jesus is uncreated, but he's begotten. So then they say, Jesus is begotten, not made. So they're, they're getting these boundaries. They're putting up these fences. Why do they keep saying begotten? Because that's the language the Bible uses. Again, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, John three sixteen, And that's where they say, being of one usia, one substance, with the Father by whom all things were made. And by saying that Jesus made all things, remember last time we did that refuting a Jehovah's Witness on the back of a napkin test? So if Jesus created all things, but Jesus is created, Jesus would have had to have created himself to create all things. And that's a logical fallacy. You, you can't not exist and then make yourself exist. So, yeah. So that's where they're threading this needle of this language. So that's the, when, what, the, what theologians, what people want to do is they want to use the Bible's language and safeguard the Bible's ideas. So that's why the language of filiation, sonship, Jesus is the eternal son, the Spirit's always the Spirit. Spiration. That's the language they use. Why do you use that language? Because it's what the Bible seems to teach. So they just use that. It's real good. Sam. Hi. Um, so we know that Jesus is not created, right? Correct. Um, so, and we also know that no attributes of God have beginning or end. Uh-huh. Um, how about his incarnation? Was he already a human being before? like before the world was created or because we know that he came into earth through Mary and he, you know, became incarnate. So that for us has a beginning. Yes. But Jesus is all, has always been, none of these attributes have a beginning. So how, how would you explain that? Yeah. That's like, 
Let me give you five bucks because that's that's the softball. That that's the exa- that is why we have the Chalcedonian definition in the Athanasian Creed. Once this was written, and everyone's saying, "Oh yes, Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity." Amen. Oh no, wait a second. So then, what does it mean that Jesus became flesh? And that's what those two creeds are about. I'll give you the hint. The hint is. That in the incarnation, the son, as to his deity, did not change. But he united humanity so that he has, the language is truly God and truly man, unmixed and unconfused. So we're going we're gonna to get to more language that is, well, he's not this, and he's not this. He's somewhere in this. And we'll, we'll get there, yeah. So, yeah, but as to God, he did not change. Very good question. I know I didn't answer all of it. What else? Any other, any other easy questions? So a couple of Sundays ago, I believe I heard you say that for someone to be saved, they have to believe that um, in Jesus, um, the Son, and God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Is that right? Yeah. So Old Testament um, saints that looked forward to the Messiah, did they have that concept? No. Not fully. So if they read Isaiah 7.14... They knew that the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name God with us. They would read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and find out that the son was also called Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And they could read Isaiah 11 and know that he was going to be born from the stump of Jesse and be of the tribe of David and be the Davidic king. But how those fit together, that's, that's what was, they, they didn't get, they had these, it was like the dimmer switch in the room was up just enough that you could see some of the furniture. So they were fiercely monotheistic. There's one God, there is no other. But then you get these texts that make it sound like this Christ Messiah figure who's going to be born, he sure sounds a lot like God in the flesh. In fact, Isaiah 7.14 says that. But it wasn't until you get to like Matthew 16 when you start having, when Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? And this great confession taking place where they recognize you are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so when Peter confessed that, he probably confessed better than he knew. Right? So Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So they had a sense, at least by Matthew 28, When Jesus says, go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's some sense that God is one but three, and so they they got it somehow. In the Old Testament, salvation, as I understand it, salvation has always been by grace through faith. And we looked a while ago, the first promise of the gospel is in Genesis 3.15. So what I believe is that 
what Abraham believed God and was accredited to him as righteousness. And he knew that he was going to have all these off, all these kids. He knew, Abraham did, that the Genesis 3.15 promise, that's what he had faith in. A savior is coming. And I don't know what his name is. And he's going to come from my family. But he's going to be the one who's going to fix everything Adam broke. So they were saved by grace through faith. Uh, but now that Jesus has risen, this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, this side of the baptism formula, for someone to be saved, they must confess their trinity. So it's kind of best attempt at trying to explain a very good question. Anything else? Any other good questions? So, um, I'm with another couple of people out at NAU sharing the gospel, and I talk about, you know, that saints before Christ looked forward to the Messiah that would come, and that we look back to the Messiah that did come. So, how do I adapt sharing the gospel to be more um, Trinitarian? That's a really good question. So, so on the one hand, it will take kind of wisdom and, and interaction with the person you're talking to, to, to embrace to uh, how you'll describe or convey the Trinity. But I, I might um, say something that, you know, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... When you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. When we confess Jesus as Lord, part of that includes that he's actually, um, that's a Trinitarian title because the Lord of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, is a title now that Jesus has, the Lord. So we're saying that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. And so gauging where this person's at, I, I might just even just tell them, we Christians are Trinitarian. We believe in one God and three persons. And they're going to say that's absurd. And you can say, yeah, it's hard to understand, but if God was easy to understand, he wouldn't be God. I don't know, something like that. Does that help at all, or is that... I don't know what that looks like exactly to go down that road because we feel like we are very clear in the gospel um, and for them to even trust in Christ would be a huge thing and and so you know if somebody trusts in Christ then are they not really saved till they grow in their faith and realize that there's a trinity that they need to believe in they, they do yeah because when they get baptized we don't want, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? I didn't, I didn't sign up for a trinity. So there's got to be a sense. So there's, you know, in sharing the gospel, different approaches to take. You could take a God, sin, Christ, faith approach and think those four systematic, you know, categories. Uh, a holy God who created all things. He's perfect. He created humanity to be his image bearers. They rebelled against him and sinned. He promised that 
he would send a son, his own son. Not a created son, but the eternal son of God, second person, the Trinity, would put flesh on and come to rescue us. I, I, so I would just include that into my gospel presentation. Um, and then if, or if you do a creation, fall, redemption, restoration, more of a story arc evangelism style, I would do this, I would kind of do the, this, a similar thing. I would just, how are we saved? God himself clothed himself in flesh, second person of the Trinity. I would, I would say it like that. And that's how I would say it. I would, so it'd be important for you to say it, you know, however it's best for you to articulate it, but to communicate that Jesus we're worshiping is not just a godly guru, and he's not a created being. Sorry. Um, no, please, it's great. So when we ask, you know, questions about where, you know, who they think Jesus is and whatever answer they give us, then we typically say that, he was God's son. Um, he was God, and he was the son of God and came in the flesh. So we do cover that, and most people don't have an issue with that, actually. They seem like that's pretty well known somehow. Yeah, I, there may be a sense in which even at a somewhat pop culture, the idea of son of God still works. But to, to clarify that, we're, we're not Mormons. So we don't think that he's a lesser God. We're not Jehovah's Witness and think that he's a created being. We need to be real specific that we believe that he is the um, eternal second person of the Trinity who's the eternal son made flesh. And I, I, would, I would be real, be real um, specific with that because they need to know that they're confessing a Trinity. And, and that would be important too because we don't want to... You know, if someone gets, if on average someone has many gospel encounters uh, before they get saved, uh, they may also have Jehovah's Witness encounters and Mormon encounters as well, who will s speak a very similar language. And so I'd want to be just real clear with, th this is who God reveals himself to be, with wisdom and tact and right timing and that, yeah. Anita. Yes. Yo, great. Okay. So um, I I have two maybe simpler questions, maybe. I don't know. One was the word UCI. Did that get completely, like, deleted because of now there's only one of one? Kind of, yeah. Okay. That was just kind of a funny Greek word question. Okay. The other question was the difference in the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed when it talks about he descended into hell. Um, and the Nicene Creed did not include that. I'm just curious if that was something they didn't feel like they needed to put in or if there was an issue that was debatable. I don't know. Yeah, good question. I've been, um, we talked, yeah, so he descended into hell as a late addition to the Apostles' Creed, mm -hmm. and that's why it's not in the Nicene Creed. Um, now, I believe that that's true. He descended into the grave, not to the place of, punishment and fire but it, it it's a late addition yeah that's that's why it's not there very good question good catch and actually just on that note on the bottom of page 48 i have a little there's a it's from christianity today there's a link there if you want to i say it's a helpful 
history but not helpful explanation <laughs> of the idea. And the reason I say it's a helpful history is they're just going to lay out um, the development of that phrase, he descended into hell, in history. But they're actually not going to use the Bible to explain why that's true. That's why I say it's not a helpful explanation. But that's a quick resource I found. Great question. Anita, do you have one? So Elaine's question is about um, understanding the Trinity. Yeah. But you don't necessarily understand the Trinity when you're saved as much as you kind of understand the idea, maybe? I don't know, but I'm thinking about kids. There are kids who are Christians, and I'm pretty sure my kids can't explain the Trinity. I don't know if I can explain the Trinity. (laughs) So I'm wondering how clear... I, I don't. I don't know if that helps. With yeah. Elaine. I just feel like there's a lot of grace on that. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. So I would say it this way, right? You've you've kind of heard that. Maybe you've heard that statement before, where the go- the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand, and complex enough for the most brilliant minds to spend all eternity not even scratching the surface of who God is in Himself. So we know from John chapter 3 that people are born again not because of their intellect or anything good that they do. People are born again because the Spirit causes them to be born again. So you can have a child who's regenerate and knows that they're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they can be taught to say, like my kids, one God and three persons. Um, I don't recall my kids ever taking time to sit down and ponder the esoteric meaning of that yet but the, the the another way to say this is that we're trinitarians and for a person to say i'm a christian and then to be exposed to the trinity and say i don't believe that and they refuse to embrace what the bible teaches then it shows they were never saved in the first place they're a false conversion that, that's what I mean. That's what happens like with the heretics. Is the heretics are men, some of them, some of them could be well-meaning, but unregenerate and and twisting the Bible. So we we I remember hearing it said once that if you can if you can believe this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can accept that statement, then you shouldn't sweat anything else. We. If you believe that, then, then getting into the Trinity, uh, legal substitutionary atonement, first Adam, last Adam, and all the stuff, we can teach it. We can help our kids understand that. Porter. Just kind of adding on to that, I, had a, I got to teach the doctrine of the Trinity in my Bible class at school. And yeah, it was really complex for some kids to kind of understand. A lot of them were walking away with, oh, there's three gods. That was a big problem. But what you mentioned earlier about the kind of the narrative aspect, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that really helped them because it puts it into kind of this this overriding story of what is human history, right? That God in the beginning, as you said, right, just open up to Genesis 1, you see the three members of the Trinity right there, right? And then what is the fall? 
go into how God restores us by sending himself through his son, right, and then gives us the Holy Spirit to be born again. I found that was helpful and kind of explained to the kids. They were like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's a, I mean, piggybacking on that great example, uh, my nine-year-old, she, she essentially asked, um, why is there evil in the world? And that led to a conversation on the Trinity. And the reason is, I believe, that God's plan all along has always been the gospel. And the gospel has always been that God himself would be clothed in flesh to both live, die, and rise in our place, to be our savior, so that we would know God in a way that we could never know him had there never been a fall, never a Satan, never a sin, or any of those things. And so what that required then for my daughter was to explain, so, so God the Son became man, so he could be God and man, and that's, that's a Trinitarian conversation. And that helps explain why there's evil, so that we would know mercy, forgiveness, grace, love, redemption, salvation, and more. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to simplify it a little bit, uh, not necessarily going off the same point that you're going, but kind of going back to the mountain with three different faces. Is that sometimes why we see like such contrast between the Old and New Testament or just different parts of the Bible? Like we see one face of God, which is more often the Father in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament as Jesus comes, we're seeing more of the Son, and we're seeing that different aspect of who God is. And then you have the Holy Spirit kind of throughout in different aspects because he's alluded in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I would want to tweak that because that's actually what modalists say. Mm-hmm. But I know you're not saying that. But his idea is that you got the, the face of the angry God in the OT and gentle Jesus in the new T. Um, when you read, so for example, just take up the book of Deuteronomy. You, you can see that God's grace, gen, the clothing Adam and Eve, God's grace has always been gracious and always been present. Part of the difference that we see, more war in the OT and those things, is that God's people were a uh, theo-geopolitical community. They were, they were a theocracy. God was their king, and they were a people who lived in a time and place and there was, there was war taking place. Part of the Mosaic Covenant, which gover- governed God's people at that time, called for uh, real-time justice against sin. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, things like, like that. What happens with, with Jesus becoming flesh is that those sins are all still sins, but Romans... Um, Two, maybe three, talks about how we're, chapter two, we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Mm -hmm. So God is still going to measure out justice and judgment, just like he did in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the instrument. He's Revelation 19. He's the one who's in the robe dipped in blood. And and so there's gentle Jesus is going to be warrior Jesus. So I, I, I want to be careful in making too sweeping of a statement that God was mean in one way in the OT. He's actually the same. He doesn't change. But his, the way that he relates covenantally progresses, not in a political sense. It, it changes. Um, the, changes. Change is not the right word. The circumstances basically allow us to see these different aspects of God. Like he's using 
like in a sense when he's um, in the Old Testament as we need to kind of, or as his people kind of need to confront more issues like in the real world. If you get what I'm trying to kind of say? Yeah, I, I would I would say if or you... Or am I still kind of going on a more modalist mindset? It's, it's a little modalist to me. <laughs> I would say if you, if you just... Um, table that notion, go back and just read carefully. It's like, okay, I'm going to read Genesis this week, and I'm going to look for evidences of God's grace. And you'll see all over the place that he is intervening in foolish and stupid human sinful actions. Uh, so grace is everywhere. So, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go there to say that you see different sides of God in different testaments. He's the same in all of them. So... Because I, I do see grace in the Old Testament. I do see him his, him giving mercy and that type of stuff. Is that what kind of makes the bigger difference? Because you're still seeing God's grace throughout the entire Bible? Yeah, you're seeing it throughout the Bible. But you're seeing his grace on steroids in the New Covenant. Maybe I could say it that way. So if you think about, if you read the book of Galatians, Paul's going to argue there that you know, the blood of bulls and goats, well, that's Hebrews, can't take away sins. So the whole reason for the whole sacrificial system and a lot of distance from God in the Old Testament was a tutor to teach us that we need a better high priest and a better sacrifice to reconcile us to God. And so that's why it's grace on steroids. So if you read John chapter 1, he's going to say um, that we have, we have grace upon grace, that there was grace with Moses and there's grace with Jesus. Um, I'm kind of I'm butchering that a little bit. So, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, for the law was, um, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's not a distinction to say law versus grace. When he says we've received grace upon grace, it means that the law was an evidence of God's grace, but the grace of Christ is even more gracious. You can kind of say it that way. Yeah. I was just going to say, sorry. I was just going to say um, in response to his question um, about God being gracious, um, I just recently finished... Um, uh, second Kings, um, but I was reading from Genesis to Second Kings. Um, but even like in the book of Judges too, like there's king after king and every single time the Israelites stray away from God, um, he punishes them. But then when they ask for mercy and they ask, you know, um, for him, he always delivers them out of their situation. So I just wanted to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, that's a great too. point. So if you read the end of Deuteronomy, he teaches the song of Moses, which was supposed to be put in the mouths of the Israelites throughout all their generations. And it's a song basically saying, if you sin, I'm going to bring hardship into your life, and I'm going to increase the temperature of that hardship until you repent. So he even graciously warns them up front. They still choose the sin. He turns up the temperature. Spankings get a little bit harder. They repent, and then he, they, he brings them home. Anita, did you have something? Good questions, good thoughts. We, we, uh, we're actually, we're over. I apologize. Let me pray 
dismiss you. And then if you want to stay and ask more questions, I'm happy to hang out for a bit. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We, we confess. We'll confess that you are God and we are not. We confess that you are the creator and we are the creature. Lord, we worship you because you are other. And we thank you that whenever false teachers arose, your church, church stood up to also defend and champion a clear understanding of what your Bible teaches. And Lord, just because our brains hurt and our minds can be a bit confused in trying to understand to understand you, one of the glories of the new heavens and new earth is going to be seeing you, Jesus, face to face and taking an eternity to explore the majesty and mystery that you are. So I pray, Lord, that you would bless us in our understanding of you, that we would embrace the truth of your word, that we would meditate upon you and your person and who you are, and thereby enjoy you and be transformed by you. Thank you for your gospel. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Good job. Good questions.